Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. You're listening to New Books in History. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie. The American attitude towards outsiders has always been ambivalent. The United States was built by immigrants is a common refrain, and today it's the most demographically diverse great power. But on the other side of that spectrum have always been anxiety about and hatred of the foreign. And there's no shortage of this from the English-only movements of the 1980s and 90s to the continued power of America first. And so today my guest is someone who has studied this ambivalence. I'll be speaking with Thomas Borstelman about his new book, Just Like Us, The American Struggle to Understand Foreigners. The book is thoughtful and it pulls examples from the unlikeliest of places, Chef Boyardee and Captain America make appearances, But it's also a provocation for us to think about the U.S.'s relationship with the foreign in a much more complicated way. I hope you enjoy our interview. I'm talking with Thomas Borstelman about his fantastic new book called Just Like Us, The American Struggle to Understand Foreigners. Thanks for coming on the show, Tim. Pleasure to be here, Dexter. Yeah, I had a, a a really fun time reading this book. Um, it, it, I could read it in one sitting, which is not something you can say about a lot of history books. Um, but the insights were like really deep and learned, and so I'm excited to talk to you about them. Terrific, great. Yeah, and so just to begin our interview, um, how did you become a historian? Wow, that's you know that's a, a question can be approached in so many ways. I. It's uh, <laughs> starting with this, I suppose, the psychoanalytical. But uh, uh, you, you know, I think I I grew up in a, an academic family. My father was a child psychologist at Duke University, and so and he his primary area of research was his, the history of ideas about child raising in Amer- in the American past. So that suggests a kind of predisposition to an interest in history in the family. My mother was a, a fairly typical uh, house homemaker, I guess would be the right term, of the 1950s and 60s. Um, and that meant that though she was highly educated, she's a Berkeley grad, and my dad was a Berkeley PhD, um, she also at one point thought about going back to be a history teacher, uh, to, to you know, get a master's degree in history. So, so there was a fair bit of that in the family. And as the youngest of four kids, the older one I modeled on, was also a history major like me at Stanford. And so I, I guess I had an awful lot of people in the family all along the way sort of suggesting the importance of, of the study of history. Now, that, those are just, you know, signposts um, in my own life. And, of course, it, it required crucially good teachers. I was really fortunate to go to high school at the Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire and have some extraordinary teachers there, particularly in history. Um, and as an undergraduate, I, I uh, you know, had a lot of great historians in the classroom at Stanford. 
But I was equally fascinated, I think, by English and psychology. Thought a lot about majoring in those on the path to, to history. Honestly, I was a history major probably because it was the easiest one for me to fulfill most quickly of the requirements <laughs> <laughs> so that I could continue to have a, a smorgasbord education, which is what I thought an undergraduate mm-hmm. education was supposed to be. A little of this, a little of that. And I didn't want to get hunkered down a burden because I didn't do, you know, honors, uh, you know, paper or degree or whatever uh, as an undergraduate. Um, but, um, but then I taught history for uh, several years in high schools in the American West. And uh, that gave me the opportunity both to learn whether I really liked teaching or not, which was great because I did, and coaching and all that sort of thing. And these were boarding schools, so I really dug into the 24-7 schedule of, of full-time education. But, um, but that also was the process by which I came to know the limits of my own knowledge and the, the contours of my ignorance, I suppose you might say, which were pretty spectacular. And after several years of that, you know, of being better and better at performing in a classroom and, and uh, impressing my students and colleagues and doing that, but also becoming increasingly aware of my own uh, limits, severe limits in knowledge, that that created a kind of uh, dissonance, a kind of lacking of intellectual integrity for me, uh, and that made me really determined to go back to grad school. Not because I needed to be a university professor or something, but because I, I just needed to know a lot more about how to teach history. Um, and so I went off to, to grad school and you know, wound up finishing a PhD at Duke and getting a job at Cornell, which was incredibly fortunate. But I wasn't needing to do that or expecting that that would happen. I, I, you know, this is in the late 1980s. And I thought, yeah, if I get through four years of graduate school and can't see the end of the road, then I'm going to just go back to high school teaching, which I was very happy doing, and I'll just be a better a better version of that. Um, I didn't want to be a perpetual ABD. That was that was the one thing I was sure of. <laughs> Fortunately, after four years, I could see the end, and uh, and and just a year later, really. So that that sort of put me on the path from there. And they had some terrific models and, and professors at, at Duke. You know, were very important to me. Mm-hmm. That's really fascinating. I mean, that that uh, explains sort of the, um, the the littering of um, almost like sort of like psychological concepts throughout your book. Um, you know, your your dad was a child psychologist, and you uh, like nearly became a, a psychology major yourself. Yeah. Um, uh, and so, what motivated you to pursue this particular project? Well, I'm 62, so I've been a, a professional. A professional historian for a long time. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, I'm three decades into university professoring, and that means a lot of research and a lot of writing along the way. This is my fourth monograph, I guess, and I, I, I co-authored a big U.S. history textbook along the way. And so I've been, been doing this for a while and, you know, sort of fleshing out and contributing to the field of what we now call the U.S. and the world or the U.S. in the world and when I started in graduate school, it was still called U.S. diplomatic history, and, you know, or the history of U.S. foreign relations. And so that field has, has you know, shifted and matured and expanded dramatically. Um, and along the way, I came to realize that in each of those projects, those earlier books, and that in all the other great research being done by 
other people in the field, there were assumptions that were not completely examined, in some cases hardly examined at all, about how Americans thought about the rest of the world. And and this was this increasingly I became just increasingly aware that there was a topic here of sort of how Americans thought about foreigners, not Americans. Um, that that affected everything in their relationship to the rest of the world, but that we really hadn't looked closely at. There were ideas and assumptions and, and sort of expectations uh, there that were doing a lot of work for that American relationship to the rest of the world. You know, and that's how, that's how I got to it. Uh, maybe there's another particular piece to it. The book aims to try to bring out a kind of broad mainstream of what Americans came to think of as their common sense, the sense they held in common about the world and about themselves in relationship to other peoples. And that, that um, is not, you know, that's not what the field of history has been focused on for the last 30 or 40 years. It's been focused much more on trying to be more inclusive, trying to bring in much of the best history writing you know, has for now, for decades, been trying to bring in voices that were previously excluded, uh, minorities and people discriminated against, and, uh, you know, various uh, ways in which we've uh, narrowed the frame of, of the American past. And, uh, and much of my earlier work was about contributing to that. But this book is, is different. Here I'm, I'm not looking at sort of how newcomers to the U.S. experience the United States at least as how they thought about the U.S. I'm not, think, I'm not looking at Latino immigrants focus, you know, and how they think about this country they're coming to, nor am I looking at, say, how Vietnamese thought about American society or something like that, all of which would be very important, virtuous projects. Um, but instead, in this case, I was, you know, really trying to elucidate what seemed to be a pretty broadly held common sense about how Americans and other peoples were related to each other, whether they were similar to each other or different from each other, you know, whether the United States was an exception or exceptional society, exceptional nation. I really felt that there was something that, that held Americans together in their views of other peoples and that ranged from left to right across the American political spectrum. You know, so I, 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 I was trying to find a kind of current, a common current, a common sense here that I thought hadn't been brought out previously. Mm -hmm. And um, before we kind of dig into the book itself, um, I was wondering if you could say something about your decision to write um, what you call an exploratory essay rather than, um, you know, like a, a comprehensive monograph. Yeah, well... <laughs> we historians do love our research. We do love our archival treasures, and we love to write uh, books that allow us to bring in everything we found um, and to write big, comprehensive uh, stories um, that are almost overloaded with evidence. And I hate to say it, but my experience among us is that we are also not particularly good writers on average. There are exceptions to that, of course. But we, instead, with my students, for example, I'm often assigning the best investigative journalists who work on historical topics just to be more engaging for the for, student, for undergraduates. 
And appraising of graduates too, you know. I mean, other, or, or or fiction writers or other people who are who have ways with the English language that seem to be more adept, more insightful, more inviting than far too many of us who, and I'm including myself in that, who write as professional historians. And so, you know, we're. We, I think we have, you know, we've painted ourselves into a pretty narrow corner as a as a broad discipline academic history you know we write for each other primarily um and we do it at great length and uh, we use a lot of jargon and it's um it's a way of uh speaking to each other but it's also a way of keeping other people out our students but also our friends our families you know everybody else and the result one result of this is that you know like other parts of modern academia we're seen as peculiar and um, incomprehensible to most Americans, even to ones who might agree with us about political or social or cultural issues. And I, I've never um, had a, a lot of close friends in academia. I, just the way things have worked out, I, most of my closest friends are not professors you know, or historians. There are a few exceptions, but mostly I, it's not my frame of reference. And, and that may seem odd because I'm the child of a, you know, fancy research university psychologist. So I, I, that should be a familiar world to me, and it is. It always has been. But I just life works out in funny ways, and I was drawn to other people and other things. And and so the people who I imagine myself writing for are the are mainstream American educated people. You know, I, I write for people who've gone to college. I suppose. You know, I, mean, I think of people who are you know can read things that are sustained enough to and be interested in those. So that usually means college-educated folks. Um, but beyond that, I don't expect anything else out of them, except that they have a, at least a mild starting interest in whatever topic I'm writing about. And they're the ones I try to reach. I've always thought in terms of, I mean, I have in my head as I'm writing, a diverse array of people I know who, who I'm trying to speak to, and they're emphatically not professional historians. And I, I just feel like, they're the ones we need to reach. Mm-hmm. So let's get into the book. It's concise. Um, you know, it's under 200 pages, but like it, it covers a lot of territory. It covers it covers a lot of ground. Um, you know, you're looking at um, you know from uh, the colonial colonial era um, to the present, um, and um, and you're also making a very subtle argument about um, sort of um, you know Americans' relations with and understandings of um, foreign peoples. One of the central arguments is that, um, you know, as the U.S. engaged with more and more foreigners um, from an ever-widening geography, um, you know, those interactions um, actually changed the definition of um, what it meant to be an American. Um, and so can you just briefly for our listeners elaborate on uh, on this argument? Sure. Um, you know, the United States begins as a, you know, a colonial project and and kind of moves from being a part of an empire into immediately being its own empire and then expanding to become this vast transcontinental empire and and then a global imperial force in mostly non-traditional, you know, less territorial fashions uh, than, than many other, such as the French or, or British. Previous empires, but the U.S. becomes this spectacularly diverse society, 
and it, and it does so, you know, for, across the full sweep of, of time. And it's a, it's a pattern that, you know, that, that demands examination at, at one level, but it also, it's a, it's uh, the best way to put this. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a history that I'm, that I'm trying to illuminate how the U.S. is almost kind of forced into dealing with the rest of the world by its own uh, perpetual increase in economic might and demographic size. And, and physical size, so that Americans, for all their inwardness and focus on themselves, a longstanding ethnocentricity in American culture, doesn't prevent them, doesn't keep them safe from all this contact with outsiders. In fact, that just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Sort of despite themselves, Americans wind up being in more and more contact. And after 1945, you have this dramatic increase still further um, into all this connectivity because you have all these American troops, you know, millions of them on every ocean and on every continent in 1945 and, and all these American business connections and trade connections and tourists, uh, you know, in the U S emerges as the spectacularly wealthy country. And it's, uh, it's just having to deal with huge numbers of people everywhere. And, and that, you know, that's, that's, uh, uh, it's a recipe for, foreignness shrinking in the American imagination. I mean, you know, the more time you spend with different kinds of peoples, you know, the less foreign they seem. And that's been the story for the United States. How they how Americans have responded to that has been a struggle, which is the subtitle of my book, you know, is to figure that out. But the idea of being kind of inward or, or isolationist, quote unquote, you know, that, that, whole story after 1945 disappears and it's not possible even if it was partly possible beforehand. So the book winds up focusing on that post-45 period after having drawn, tried to illuminate the the, the sort of run-up to World War II. It is true that after World War II, it's the Cold War period that really brings forth this dramatic uh, further diminution of what is born in the American imagination. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you go through a variety of, um, you know, orientations toward foreigners. Um, I mean, like your, your book is, is really trying to, uh, um, yeah, show like the ambivalences and diversity of um, approaches to um, the foreign. Um, but one orientation in particular um, that I thought was so fascinating was um, the idea that every foreigner is already or has the potential to be an American. Um, and here you um, use um, uh, a, just a really um, dramatic quote from Full Metal Jacket, um, uh, which uh, I think really highlights this. Um, yeah. And yeah. so... Um, uh, that was yeah, the original so, title. That was the title of the book originally. Oh, yeah. Oh, was was in, in, Inside Every Foreigner was the original title of the book, um, you know, which comes from that that scene in Full Metal Jacket. Yeah. So, yeah. The, so, you know, where, yeah. So, yeah. So, like, where the, you, you go ahead. Well, this is, I mean, this is the, the South, the, this is the American, you know, uh, Colonel explaining to the American, this increasingly skeptical American GI journalist, you know, on, you know, on the ground in this fictional scene about why Americans are in Vietnam. And he says that we're in Vietnam uh, because inside every, and he uses an epithet for Asians, but he clearly means all Asians. And he really means all foreigners inside every, foreigner is an American trying to get out. 
And that, and the American trying to get out, that's the, that's the thing that Americans have tended to share. There have been some dissonance, dissonance against this, who, who haven't agreed with this point of view. But across the spectrum of um, the American past, there's been a very large majority who have understood the American uh, model of the American society, American culture, American political liberty as what is the most natural form for human beings to live in. It's a way to make people freest and happiest and that Americans have benefited from that and that everybody else, because of course the U.S., as they always acknowledge, at least in a sideways way, from the nation of immigrants and descendant of immigrants, that, that, that everybody else who's not in the United States in their hearts, if they got the choice, would want to be living like Americans. If not actually in the U.S., they would want an American-style system in the Philippines or in Russia or in Tanzania or, or Colombia or anywhere else. You know, and this is rooted in, a, in this really, this is not a liberal or conservative idea. Right? And this is what I really try to make this clear in the book, just how much this ranges from people on the left to people on the right, this shared sense of of a kind of universalism about it's it's weird because it's ethnocentric, but it's also universalistic, right? It's this idea that, that the U.S. is both the best and, and clearly a distinctive, as well as the best culture and society in human history. But it's also one that is that everybody else is welcome to and wants to be part of, and and should be allowed to be part of either inside the U.S. or in other countries that become more like the U.S. Right, so it doesn't. So you know, at its heart, this is a very, this is very much. It's an inclusive vision of humanity. It, it's not an exclusive one, and it's it's not uh, it's not conservative. I mean, it's the opposite of conservative in the sense of you know, old kind of um, you know Edmund Burke and social conservatism with the whole idea of consolidating slow, gradual development of societies in their each in their own distinctive patterns and behaviors and customs with their own hierarchies and that every every society is different you know and that they they're the one thing they are not is all the same so when americans call themselves conservative today i always think it's kind of funny because i just don't see us as conservative in any meaningful sense of that word historically Um, yeah, and so um, yeah, so th- this orientation is uh, it, it's it's like one of the um, uh, more common tendencies um, uh, in in your book, um, but I guess it kind. I mean, so if if, if um, an American, if there's an American trying to get out of every foreigner, um, that sort of begs the question: like, what exactly is an American? Um, and so um, you know, in another chapter, you kind of go through the emergence of. Um, uh, you know, an American national identity, um, uh, namely in like the, uh, or mainly in the first half of the 20th century, um, you know, oriented around like political liberty, um, uh, you know, and, um, uh, and consumerism. Um, uh, and, but then there, there's also like a, a new language that develops around uh, Americanism, namely like the American dream and uh, the American way. Um, can you say something about, um, you know, like, what exactly American meant, um, perhaps, um, I guess, like in, in the first half of the 20th century? Yeah. Well, I mean, ever since the American Revolution, outside observers were 
extremely conscious that what was going on in what had become the United States was something different. This was a this was a a, a creation of a slave owning and Indian slaughtering, but nonetheless democratic republic out of a former set of European colonies overseas. This is unprecedented. Um, and and it becomes a model, of course, for national independence movements around the globe over the next 150 years. But through the 18th century, I'm sorry, through the 1800s and the period of industrialization and the transcontinental expansion of the United States, uh, these outside observers, like Americans themselves, are all sort of trying to figure out what is this new thing, these, these Americans? What is this new culture that seems so restless and so wealthy and so... Um, expansive and obsessed with liberty or freedom or the restriction of those in the case of slavery or women in the political system or, you know, I mean, the, the Americans seem to be different than other peoples by their own acclamation, but also from the outside. A lot of people who come to visit the U S write various books and interpretations of this American culture. So when you get into the early 20th century, and the full impact of industrialization, of the creation of modern urban society in the United States, um, you have the development of a, of a kind of consumer capitalist society that is, you know, that's, that's new in the world because it's so widespread, the ability to buy things. And this is something that Americans today, with our focus on inequality and the dramatic differences in income and wealth in this country, we tend to forget that it was the development of a widespread, vast, affluent middle class, visible earlier, but really in the 1920s, and then particularly from the 1950s on. It's that development of that affluent middle class that makes the U.S. look like a different phenomenon than other parts of the world. And it and it, it it seems to observers both in the US and outside that this may be the future. I mean the other alternative is what's happening in the Soviet Union, you know, which is the, the sort of state socialist future, communist future, um, as a replacement for the you know imperial systems that have dominated the globe for the previous centuries. And that's what's being wrestled out. But but in the American part of this, this a new self-proclaimed American way of life that you, you nicely know, you know, this emphasis on economic opportunity and, and, and mobility, social mobility to increase your own socioeconomic condition to improve it compared to that of your parents, but also geographical mobility to move within the U.S. increasingly freely in a country that has become overrun with automobiles as well as other forms of modern transportation. You know, the U.S. is this vast, restless widespread, affluent, consumer, middle-class society, that's different. And it's uh, its something that in 2020, we look at and say, oh yeah, that's not a very interesting story. But it was an extraordinary story at the time. The idea that m most people in a modern society could live outside of poverty and with some version of economic security and then increasing potential for that in their children and their grandchildren. This was amazing. You know, and that, and that's part of what people are commenting on and wrestling with. It's it's not that they, they're saying their country is perfect. They're saying this is just a different 
society put together here. And they talk a lot about freedom, by which they mean political liberty, freedom to vote and organize and such, but they also mean really the underneath it all the, the right to own property, to have that property protected, um, and the opportunity to to make more out of one's property. So that that kind of uh, American dream, as you also suggest, is part of that. Um, and it's rooted in the other kind of language that comes out of those 1920s and 30s uh, public sort of discussion, and that is the Judeo-Christian tradition. You know, this whole idea of a Judeo-Christian civilization, which is a, you know, it, it's it, there's a whole complicated history to that uh, that phrase, but it's specifically a way of expanding beyond a Protestant or, or white Anglo-Saxon Protestant heritage to include Catholics, Roman Catholics, and to include Jews. So it's a much bigger vision of who's involved in this mainstream American society. It's much more diverse, the Judeo-Christian version. Yeah. So that, that's all part of the package of, what, of how Americans have come to think of themselves. And then, of course, this is all shaken up by the Great Depression. And people try to figure out, well, is that the end of this? Did, did our consumer capitalist great middle class just die? You know, and that, and that World War II, you know, resurrects it. And of course, the Cold War is going to sustain it. And, and to Joseph Stalin's great dismay and, and sort of consternation and that of other Soviet leaders, the Americans managed to rebuild capitalism during and after World War II in a way that they weren't supposed to be able to according to expectations in the communist world. Right? And then they were able to lead, you know, the, the rest of the non-communist countries in an increasingly tight set of coalitions around NATO and the Truman Doctrine, et cetera. Um, you know, that, that, that made it uh, very hard for, the, for this communist project to, uh, to win in that big struggle of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, another component of um, America, the American way um, or whatever is um, language, in particular English. And so um, language politics play a really interesting role in your book. Um, you know, uh, just as the United States was rising to supremacy in the 20th century, English was becoming the lingua franca of the world. Um, and so um, uh, the, the sort of this um, correlation between, you know, America's language and the world's language um, led to some uh, interesting um, uh, sort of dynamics where, like, um, uh, Americans were really had really mixed feelings about uh, studying foreign languages or immigrants keeping their mother tongue. Um, you know, after they've, um, you know, arrived in the United States. And so can you just kind of um, walk our listeners through the relationship between language and the concept of the foreign? Yes. I I had not read at the time that I finished writing um, uh, Just Like Us, the book. I hadn't yet read uh, Daniel Immerwar's How to Hide an Empire, though I'd seen parts of it earlier. He has some excellent sections on a parallel sort of discussion and others have worked on this, but but language, of course, is um, at the very foundation of how we understand the world around us and what's familiar and what's not. So, to understand other people, usually you have to speak with them, um, and how you speak with them is pretty pretty much crucial. And for Americans, you know, part of this is centered in the idea that English is the language of the of the early colonies, for the most part, at least the formal language, and the language of most of the, of the settlers in the early colonies. 
And it's only later that, you know, that it becomes an American English. I mean, part of the reason that in the years before the War of 1812, uh, the American uh, sailors are being impressed, uh, seized and pressed into service on British naval ships is because they still sound British. <laughs> in other words, it's hard to argue in any obvious way that they're not still British. It's 1804. Seven, you know, and so it takes time for language to evolve in some ways, so that the American accent today, the sort of nasal accent that Americans think of as "quote English" unquote, but which other English speakers think of as American English, you know, that, that takes a lot to develop. But it is true that um, English becomes the dominant language of international trade and commerce in the mid and late 1800s, replacing French. Um, and that, that phenomenon is something that Americans t- just sort of take for granted, that they were given this as a kind of backhanded gift of being the largest, most powerful offshoot of the British Empire, right? I mean, Canadians, Australians, New Zealanders, I suppose, could claim the same thing, but, they, but you know, it's the American Empire that's so large, and it's, and it's become increasingly American-accented English, well, you know, it's dominated. Uh, international commerce and entertainment and communication systems. And we see that with the use of internet, internet postings and languages that those are in. We see it in commerce, we see it in diplomacy and science and all kinds of different realms. Uh, globalization since the 1970s, particularly since the 1990s, has expanded this, the reach of English even further. And one result of it is that Americans have become lazier and lazier about understanding other languages. Maybe that sounds too judgmental. Less and less interested in other languages would be another way to say it. I mean, it depends on how, you, how important you see the idea of understanding other cultures by learning another language. To me, it's like um, having the vision of one eye versus two eyes. If you have just one culture, one language that you speak, it's like having one eye. It's hard to see cultural depth, just like it's hard to catch a, a football thrown at you if you have just one eye. It's harder than with two. It's not that you can't do it. It's just harder and you have if you have Two, you go from monocular to binocular vision. Things work easier. And the same is true in a sense of cultural wisdom and understanding. Um, you know, if you learn another language, especially for Americans, it helps to get outside of their assumption that everybody thinks as they do and speaks as they do. Because languages, of course, reflect all kinds of values and assumptions about behavior, how, how people should operate in the world. So, so for Americans, it's been easy to not learn other languages, um, and to, for a certain number of Americans, to expect that anybody who moves to the U.S. will, of course, learn English very rapidly. You know, that that's just part of course, that's what you do when you move to a new place. And, of course, other people who come to the U.S. do learn English. Whether they learn it fast enough is a kind of ongoing argument. But the one thing that is visibly the case, despite these arguments, is that the children of immigrants emphatically learn English incredibly fast because the incentives are overwhelming to do so. And, uh, and they're, you know, they often, of course, wind up being translators for their parents if their parents haven't yet learned enough English to function and, and for their grandparents, etc. And, and so there is a kind of shift over the generations that's very fast. And it's the same thing, whether it was the case of Germans in Pennsylvania in the mid-1700s or whether it's Latinos in Florida 
in the 1980s. I mean, the incentives are the same to learn this new language. And uh, so Americans have had a kind of, you know, anxiety about whether people are fitting in fast enough and language is a kind of marker of that. And so it's been a, a point of contention and there have been various times when states in particular have thought about or moved toward declaring official English only, um, you know, language restrictions in terms of forms to be filled out or how you communicate with your citizens. Those have ebbed and flowed with periods of anxiety about immigration. Um, The 1980s and 1990s saw particular emphasis in sort of English only uh, um, education and English only sort of instruction in other ways. But I, I think that what always strikes me about those debates is how disconnected from reality they seem. That they have seemed to not reflect at all the overwhelming power of the motivations to fit in and to learn the language of pleasure. And you know, that's that's something that seems to be largely left out. Sometimes, you know, that, in other words, that Americans sometimes fail to see the power of their own culture which is rooted in the largest economy in the world still, and all the incentives inside that economy, as well as the relative freedoms of American society, you know, and that people are drawn to this. That's why we have more than 40 million foreign-born people in the United States, which is more than four times as much as the next largest receiving country of immigrants, which would be Germany, you know, and that that all these people are come to the U.S. because of these opportunities, and the power of that pull is tremendous. And sometimes it seems as though Americans don't quite realize the strength of their own system, culture, society, economy, and they're more anxious than they ought to be, particularly their leaders mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. This is, yeah, you know, I, I, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, this is part of, part of the argument in the book too. Is is uh, has that really comes out in the last chapter? Is this, you know, what the degree to which the United States winds up influencing the rest of the world in really powerful fashion? And much of that is rooted in this subversive kind of character of American values and individualism and and the kind of culture that Americans carry with them, like a virus, to use our current pandemic metaphors. Yeah. Um, Just to go back to um, your comparative factoid about. there being uh, four times as many immigrants in the U.S. as um, the the next nation with, um, uh, I guess, like the second largest um, uh, number of immigrants. Um, your use of comparison is actually really interesting in this book, um, and so like you end up so like you know of, of, like like of course there um, there are huge limits to um, uh, you know to, to incorporation and um, uh, you know incorporation of newcomers um, and you, your book um, you know tells this story but when you p- place the United States sort of in a comparative context with like other empires or other um, nation states other great powers um, uh, the U.S. actually does look different. Um, you know, like you, you, you veer away from exception, exceptionalism, but um, I think these comparisons do um, present a different portrait of the United States. Um, like, as you put it, the, um, you know, the, the U.S. is like, um, uh, like spectacularly diverse, um, uh, you know, and you, you go through um, this uh, really interesting um, anecdote of um, someone uh, in the, the 2000s or 2010s who attempted to get citizenship in China. Um, and like the, 
Yeah, and so the the, the, um, the Chinese state, like the you know the, the consulates or the embassies, had no um, like they didn't really know how to approach that. Um, like they like they didn't. Even, like, it wasn't that they weren't interested in um, you know make, like letting this person become Chinese. They just, he was like, Chinese American, and he was Chinese American, right? Yeah, he was a Chinese mm-hmm. American. Yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah, and so and so like obviously that is very different from uh, yeah. the yeah. the U.S.'s um, uh, approach to immigration. Yeah, it's really true. It's it's a it is a great story about how China is this great immigrant migrant sending uh, culture and society historically in the U.S. is very much a receiving society, and that's in that you can see some huge differences in how they've understood themselves over time. Yeah. Uh, Americans are, this, this question of comparison is really interesting to me because exceptionalism, American exceptionalism, Dexter, that's, you know, that's a ideological construct. That's something that people use for cultural warfare these days. And so that's fine if they want to use it, although it always, it's not fine because it's, it's rooted in profound ignorance, I guess is what I really should say. But it seems for historians, it's a, it's a red hair. It's not useful in any way because it implies that there's a, 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 stand, a rule for social development of different societies and countries, you know, and that you have to, and that they're, everybody else is in following that rule, that pattern, and that the U.S. stands outside of that and goes in a different direction. That's preposterous <laughs> because every society has its own distinctiveness. Uh, and, but you are right that the comparisons I try to offer there do sometimes show the United States as particularly far outside of the bell curve or you know, way down out on the edge of the bell curve, I suppose, in the distribution of characteristics of societies. It, it's, a, it's a distinctive place. It's more distinctive than some others, which is not the same thing as being exceptional. Um, and also, exceptionalism is about how you feel about the country. You know, there's a lot of sentiment involved in that and you know, rooted in people's parents and people serving in wars, et cetera, all of which is terribly important for citizens, but not so much for historians because we're stand outside and put a different hat on to think about this stuff. And then we can go home and feel about it how we want to in our citizens' lives. But so historically, the comparative part really interests me because um, most of the writing about American history, and I would assume most of the writing about all nations' histories, have been rooted in a kind of focus on just that particular society or country or part of a country or society. Um, you know, there's obviously international History is written in some exceptions to that. But uh, not very many historians, professionally or other kinds, have emphasized comparative history. And I'm not really a comparativist, but I've sort of slid that direction over the last half of my career for the, I guess, the fairly straightforward reason that the idea of evaluating, analyzing, and evaluating American society and American history and making judgments or coming to conclusions about it seems seemed increasingly to me to hold less value if I didn't know what to compare it to. In other words, what are the other options <laughs> to, to what else might the U.S. have been? I mean, the counterfactual history is one thing. We kind of fantasize what if the South had won the Civil War, you know, other kinds of counterfactual uh, you know, patterns that didn't happen. But other countries are, are counterfactuals that did happen, right? I mean, this is, this is the real set of options so that a good Canadian like you, you know, it's going to be thinking, well, the United States is not at all natural, right? I mean, it's just a particular society and, not, and Canada is similar to it in some ways and very different in other ways. I didn't mean to presume that you 
see things as a Canadian. I just remind any listeners that, you know, that we presume we're all, yeah. if we're working in U.S. history, that we're all American, which is ridiculous. So, so compare, doing some elements of comparison, I, I mean, it seems to me a kind of minimal standard for, for trying to think more broadly and wisely about uh, what's happened in the U.S. in the past. I, I did this in my previous book, which was on a global history of the 1970s. It was really a history of the U.S. and its political culture in the 70s, but I framed it with a lot of comparisons to what was going on in other parts of the world. Just to try to say, look, it's not, you know, what happened in the U.S. in the 70s wasn't unique. It was connected to all these other places. And especially since World War II, as the U.S. has become more and more connected to the rest of the world, economically, socially, lots of different ways. Uh, immigration numbers have gone up dramatically. We're just connected in so many ways. And, you know, the, as a result of that, in that era, it, it just seems kind of necessary to pay attention more necessary than it should have always been <laughs> to, to pay attention to other places and, and think about the U.S. in comparative terms. Of course, this also creates a problem. And that is back to your earlier question uh, about, you know, writing huge books versus writing more accessibly uh, briefer books. And comparative histories tend to, often they tend to bog down in extraordinary detail. Um, by being kind of careful about each place, each case you're comparing, that can be painful too. And so I try not to do that. Instead, it's a little bit more of a consider this example, consider this example. It's just as ways to shake up the reader and hopefully encourage them to think more about this and get curious about other places, right? So that, so that on the question of immigration, for example, that one way to think about the number of immigrants in the U.S. is in raw total numbers, which that number is huge and impressive. But it's also part of a country that is the third largest country in the world in population. So that big number of 44 and a half million foreign born people today isn't actually that big a number compared to the overall U.S. population, some 330 million, uh, as it is in a, in a nation like Canada, which has a higher percentage of foreign born residents. So, you know, so it's not that the U.S. is more... Uh, immigrant build than other societies so much as that it has a spectacular number as well as being relatively open to immigrants. That's all. So, so those kinds of comparisons seem to me to be just essential increasingly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I really appreciate the comparative framework. Um, I, and I think that um, it really, yeah, gets to the question of like, how do we evaluate history? Like how do we evaluate, um, you know, a state? How do we evaluate a society? Um, and I think, the the fact that we live in an interstate world with all these other <laughs> potential reference, um, uh, you know, we I, th I think it behooves us to you know ex examine what what they're doing. Um, so just moving on, I want to talk um, about um, sort of the uh, I, I would I would call it like the center of your book, which is the Second World War and the early Cold War, um, because it's um, uh, and and, uh, and sort of like the rise of the United States to supremacy. It, it's really in this moment um, that um, uh, like uh, just a lot of things come together in your um, narrative. In particular, um, these events um, really transformed how Americans viewed Asians and Asian Americans. Um, and so, um, you know, so like 
these like big international processes, um, you know, um, more and more Americans are abroad, um, they're interacting with um, more and more foreigners, um, and you actually start to see uh, um, a pretty dramatic shift in how they're viewing um, uh, you know, Asians and Asian Americans. And so, um, you know, you, you have the story of, um, you know, Congress, um, you know, carving out special exceptions for the military regarding immigration intermarriage. Um, and you, you have all these other stories, but um, can you just yeah. elaborate on like this moment and this shift? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate you asking about this. Um, much of early American history was oriented to the degree it was oriented internationally was toward Europe, which was, you know, in the 1700s, 1800s, early 1900s, you know, it was the center of power. It's where the most important nations were, the most influential ones, and the models to the United States, as well as the countries that most Americans had roots in. And that sort of eastward orientation shifts in the, in the Cold War era. And 1979 is a really useful marker for this, because that's the year that trade across the Pacific for Americans surpasses trade across the Atlantic. So, and this is long before the U.S. is developing a big trade relationship with China, because China in 1979 has very little trade. It's just emerging from the Maoist period um, and just beginning to open up you know, the use of markets. So, But so by 79, you have this shift that uh, is a marker of the degree to which Americans, since World War II, have oriented themselves toward engagement with Asia. And, you know, you see that in the war against Japan. World War II, you see it in the war in Korea, early 1950s, and you see it, of course, in the war in Vietnam through the, the uh, late 50s, but particularly the 60s and early 70s. And so there's a sort of whole set of engagements involving military conflict, involving political allegiances, involving trade relations, particularly with, the, with Japan, plus the what were then known as the Four Tigers, the smaller states uh, developing as capitalist nations on the, on the eastern edge of uh, Asia heartland. And, and the U.S. winds up engaged with Asia to an extent that I think Americans would have found unbelievable uh, before World War II. They were surprised by it, you know. And uh, World War II sets the stage for this with with the, having to fight a war out of, essentially projected out of California, out of Hawaii, um, across the ocean. And the result is that a whole bunch of Asians wind up in the United States. You know, that's not, not surprising as a result of these patterns of engagement, just like a lot of Americans wind up serving uh, in the military and trading with and living in Asia. Um, and this forces Americans over time uh, in the 19th, 40s and particularly the 1950s and early 60s to uh, change their immigration laws, as you suggested, to make accommodations for Asians who had previously been excluded as sort of imagined to be unassimilable peoples. You know, much of American immigration history since the 1860s, particularly 1882, had been about excluding Asians. And that part, as historians, we've really nailed down. We're really good at writing about extraordinary histories of exclusion uh, of and violence against people of Asian descent in the United States. What we've been less good at until just the last few years, uh, with a flurry of books that have come out since 2013, um, is about the degree to which Asian Americans found themselves increasingly swept into and included inside the American mainstream. You know, so that they go from being a yellow peril in World War II 
to being a, a kind of model minority by the late 1960s, which has its own problems and expectations about you know, stereotypical behavior, being deferential and family-oriented and hardworking and all that sort of stuff. Um, non-athletic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> At least until Jeremy Lin shook them up, you know, in the NBA as a basketball player. And everybody was like, wow, that's amazing. Look, it's, you know, an Asian-American athlete at the professional level. So, I mean, in other words, there, there are stereotypes there that, that aren't great that come with the model minority stuff. And, of course, Asia is where two-thirds of the world's people live. It's wildly diverse, and the whole category of Asian-American is preposterous at some levels because it, it occludes more than it uh, explains but it nonetheless had power in immigration restrictions. And, uh, and those changed over the years between World War II and, and uh, 1965. And the result of that is that Asians become more and more familiar to non-Asian Americans. And they interact with them in all kinds of ways, uh, including the most intimate of uh, intermarrying with them and adopting them into their families and moving to Asia and becoming you know, adopted into Asian extended families. The, the latest example of this, of course, is all the Americans who work in China today, who sometimes wind up married to Chinese and stay, you know, don't ever come back. I mean, they wind up being, being uh, immigrants out of the United States, immigrants instead. So, so this, there's a, a huge shift in, in whether Asians are foreign or not. I mean, it's, this is rooted, of course, in a longer struggle, and, and the book tries to make this clear, uh, among non-Asian Americans of understanding Asians as being sort of relatively virtuous or non-virtuous, you know, and there have always been tropes of ideas about uh, images, stereotypes about Asians as good, as sophisticated, as civilized, as highly cultured, as wise, you know, all kinds, as well as all these negative ones about being devious and, uh, and you know, criminal and, and dark-oriented in so many different ways and being oriented toward drug dealing, et cetera. <clears throat> so there have been sort of good and bad Asian themes in American history. And it's the it's the shift toward the good Asian themes that's really most powerful in the post-World War II period. And it's a result, to no small extent, uh, from the actual political needs of fighting the Cold War against the Soviet Union and, and trying to model democracy, modeling democracy while excluding people and putting them down and beating them up and killing them as a category, as a racial category, is not a winning strategy, you know, in the struggle for third world loyalty and friendship between the U.S. and the Soviets. So that's a big part of, you know, of this post-World War II era. And sometimes I think um, Americans have forgotten the degree to which the U.S. has had Asian allies for a long time, you know, and that China in World War II was very important to Americans. That it wasn't just anti-Asian sentiment, it was anti-Japanese sentiment. They often had to sort of sort out the idea that Chinese were or the good guys for the American allies helping do the fighting, you know, tying down two million Japanese imperial troops in China during World War II. So there's a fascinating, you know, struggle that goes on there, and it's it's a great demonstration of this ongoing incorporation of different peoples into the United States as well as into the American sense of allies abroad and who could be like the United States. Maybe I could just mention one other little piece of that that I really found interesting is the is the anxieties during some of these wars in Asia uh, about about communists taking control of Americans who they captured in war. So this particularly in the Korean War was a real big theme. You know that PO, American POWs might be uh, brainwashed. This was the concern by their 
North Korean, but particularly their Chinese captors in, in Korea, um, that they might be somehow have their own liberty-loving American, essentially, core pulled out of them, extracted from them through some sort of mind control techniques that Americans feared that Chinese communists had come up with, and that instead they would implant into those American POWs these, uh, these hostile, anti-democratic ideas. And this is what came out in the, the famous film, The Manchurian Candidate, that was then redone later, was this anxiety of, of you know, people being take, having, their, having their true American freedom taken away from them and that being, having something else put back in, in its place. That was a, a fear of captivity. And that, that, that connects to a lot of American anxieties from early colonial struggles against Native Americans and being taken prisoner by, by Iroquois and other Native Americans and being transformed into something other than their liberty-loving English colonial selves. You know? So there, this is a long set of anxieties about captivity in American history. You know, it's the kind of, it's the kind of uh, obverse of, of the liberty that's supposed to be the heart of the American uh, essence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually um, really helpful because this points to another you know, argument in your book, which is that Americans um, have been, um, uh, like, like throughout, throughout American history, um, there's been this fear that um, you know, foreigners and their culture um, were going to subvert um, U.S. culture. But as you, um, you know, uh, explain in the, um, at the end of your book, it turned out that American culture was always the much more subversive force um, in the world. Um, and this is a thesis that um, I, I thought was um, yeah, really interesting, but um, we do not have time to talk about it right now. And so I'm just going to alert our readers um, to that section in your book. Um, but uh, I, I just wanted to ask a couple more questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so one is, you know, you you began writing this book during the tail end of the Obama years, right. um, and now it's published in the final year of Trump's, um, uh, you know, um, uh, administration. Um, ideally, his uh, you know his one and only term, but that remains to be seen. Yes. Um, and so, yeah. I imagine that you um, had to um, change um, uh, some of the narratives in your book. Um, you know, can you actually just like maybe share with listeners, um, you know, what this experience was like, you know, writing a book in seemingly two different historical epochs? When I, uh, when I finished the writing of Just Like Us and told friends, you know, that it was done and they, and they would sort of ask me again to remind them, you know, what it was that I had been writing about and what the argument was, they would, and you know, and I would say, well, look, it's this story about how we think about foreigners, but but it's it's fairly optimistic in the sense that it sees Americans ultimately as much more inclusive than exclusive, you know. And I would say this after the election of, of twenty sixteen to Trump, and, and they would say, "Well, that seems like a really isn't that not actually what they typically said was, well, aren't you just wrong?" <laughs> <laughs> it was great, but I'm like, no, no, not at all. I mean, what I'm I'm not writing the future. Right. I was I was writing this in 2015-16 in the early 2017 essentially the bulk the bulk of it and I was writing on the basis of 400 years of colonial and U.S. history and where we had gotten to 
Now, it may be that the 2016 election and the Trump presidency marks a reversal of this, and now we're going to go in a different direction. That may be, I don't know, I'm not a futurologist, but uh, I doubt it. My guess is that we're in one of those repetitive periods, a sort of resurgence, recrudescence of uh, nativist and racist rhetoric and violence um, that, you know, they keep coming up and they also get overwashed out by other movements that follow on them. And so we don't really know where this is going to go. If a year from now, you and I were to have this conversation and Trump has been soundly defeated at the ballot box and the Democrats have taken over the Senate and bolstered their lead in the House, you know, and taken over some state governments, things will look different. And everybody will be like, wow, that was a weird period. And what are we going to, what should we make out of that? You know, or, or by contrast, maybe we'll be a police state in two more years, you know, and then it'll be like, well, boy, you really were writing a kind of a fairly optimistic, something that turned out as an epitaph for, you know, American democracy uh, and its inclusive character. I don't know. I don't know where the future will go. But, I, but I, I'm trying to stay true to the historical record that I see here. And the pattern is clearly one of inclusion, much more than exclusion, of a, a society that is more diverse than any other great power in world history. And that celebrates that diversity to an extent unprecedented among other great powers. There's, it's a, it's an extraordinary story, even if it begins to reverse at this point, which I don't think it is. I think we're just in a wave of, you know, I'm, I guess I'm too optimistic, but I think we're not done yet. Mm-hmm. Great. And so um, that's, uh, I think, uh, a good place to wrap up the discussion of the book. Um, can you briefly tell our listeners what you're working on right now? Oh, good. Well, I'm, I'm working on a set of essays really about uh, teaching, about my, what I've learned in uh, decades in classrooms and and about sort of themes and problems in American history and in international history that I think have been uh, uh, not written about in ways that are very accessible to large audiences. So I'm trying to work on very short pieces. Look some When I say uh, uh, essays, I actually mean something closer to newspaper-length articles, you know, something that, that would be much more, less, much less typical of historians and much more accessible to a broad audience to say, okay, you want to think about racism? Let's do this in two or three pages here. And there were a few suggestions for readings after that. Let's, let's do one page on, you know, on gay rights and how this has changed. Let's do three pages on, you know, I don't know, sexual orientation and, and try to encapsulate things in ways that could be provocative to a large audience of people and useful in a classroom. Mm -hmm. Oh, that sounds wonderful. That sounds like a a very necessary uh, set of things to, um, uh, to kind of like have out there published. So yeah, yeah, I'll I'll be looking forward to to reading those. Um, Tim, I really want to thank you again for speaking with me today. Dexter, it's been a total pleasure. Thank you for your interest. Great. And you've been listening to New Books in History, a channel with the New Books Network.